Welcome to week three of Some Assembly Required. Now, we're in this series to really help us understand that God has done something pretty incredible. As we've been online for 17 months and we've been getting back into the rhythm and meeting again indoors, that God sort of held everything together because he promised to hold things together. Uh, I want to go back and tell a story. In my first full-time ministry position, uh, there was a situation that caused our best friends to walk away from our church at the time. And part of my responsibility is I was over uh, birth to 12th grade. I was over those in ministries or environments. And I was also leading the student environments, middle school and high school. And we had a couple who volunteered with us. And over our time of serving together, we just became really close friends, really good friends. Then on a Sunday, man, it just went sideways. One moment, it all went sideways. So during Sunday school, uh, I was teaching on pride and helping the kids understand, the middle school and high school kids understand, it's so important to keep on guard, keep guard, uh, that we don't fall into the trap of pride. And I said, it can even happen to a pastor. And so I used myself as an um, example, illustration, and I said, look, even as a youth pastor, I could fall in the trap of pride. I could believe, and then I could tell others that, uh, I'm, the, I'm the church's greatest youth pastor, and I will always be the, the church's uh, greatest youth pastor. Well, while this was going on, one of our middle school girls was going through a really hard time. Her parents were going through uh, their divorce proceedings, and it was just, uh, I get it. She was acting out, asked her to stop, she stopped, we moved on. Well, later that day, um, I called I received a call from the pastor, and he said, I want you to meet my office before the Sunday night service. I'm thinking, okay. I sit down. He looks at me. He says, I need you to tell me your side of the story. I thought, my side of the what? He explained to me what happened according to the girl's version of what happened. And I shared my story. And he said, well, after talking with our deacons, we believe that you're in the wrong he said, we believe the girl's story, and her friend has backed her. And I said, well, what's her story? And the story was that I believe that I was the greatest youth pastor the church would ever have. Well, that's, that's, was, that was a twist on what happened. And he says, we, we, have, we believe the course of action is for you to stand in front of the church on Sunday night after the service and apologize to that family and to the church for modeling bad behavior. So... I talked with Jenny, I called Jenny, and I said, this is what's going on, what should I do? And she gave me her thoughts, and then we called our best friends, and we said, what, this is what's going on, what should we do? Because they were in the room, I mean, they knew what was going on, they knew what happened. And of course, no one agreed with the course of action, but at the end of the call together, I believe that the best thing to do for the health of the church was just to was just to do what was I, I was being told to do, just just apologize. So I remember, it was like yesterday. I remember the room. I remember what I was wearing. I remember the people in the room. I remember where our best friends were sitting. I remember where Jenny was sitting. I remember all of that. And I remember being introduced by the pastor and saying, all right, Jeff has a th- few things to say. Most of you guys know what happened. So I apologize. The moment that I was apologizing, our best friends walked out from the third row, walked out. Then another family with a middle school daughter walked out as well. They walked out. So after I get done apologizing, service lets out. I go outside. I'm trying to find them. I can't find them. So we call 
finally get a hold of them and they're like, we're never coming back. We're never coming back. See, unfortunately, churches like that, man, are a dime a dozen. Uh, I, I, was, I grew up at a church very similar to that uh, growing up and they majored what they were against and they minored what they were for. So you knew what they were against before you knew what they were for. And I remember the church, they boycotted Disney and Disney movies because uh, Disney was not, uh, let's say they were pretty passive with the gay agenda. Well, little did they know that the Geyer family, we still had our like tower or two of VHS Disney collections, man, like Cool Runnings and all those fun movies. Then at summer camp, our church would get together with a bunch of other churches and we would have these bonfires and they would have cassette and CD burning. I'm making this stuff up. I remember some of the kids, they weren't supposed to bring these cassettes. I mean, they're listening to like ACDC, Metallica. And I remember some of the kids, they're playing the cassette backwards. And they're like, do you hear that demonic message? I'm like, no, I don't, I don't hear, I don't hear anything. You got, you got, you got put, put your ear to it. You got to listen. I'm like, I don't, I don't hear anything. And then when the CDs were burning, they were like, man, they're, they're, the demons are being exercised. I'm like, I think that's just plastic burning. You know, I just, I, I'm just not so sure with all of that. But maybe you're like my, my best, our best friends. And you've just sort of walked away with, with all what you deem is nonsense. Like, I, I'm, I'm done with this. But you believe that your church was so against everything, you didn't know what they were for. See, one of the benefits of, of my job is I get to talk with lots of people from our community, those who attend our church, those who don't attend our church, those who attend other churches, those who aren't even thinking about attending church. And those who attend other churches, the thing that I hear often is why they attend that church. And then from the athletes, I hear why they're being made to attend that church. And then I hear from those who don't attend anywhere, and they're not even thinking about attending anywhere. And this is what I hear for two reasons why they don't go. Number one, they don't want to be associated with the weird Christians, the judgy Christians. And then the second thing is they don't want to be judged. They want to live their life the way they want to live it. I mean, I've heard, I have neighbors that say that. I just want to live my life the way that I want to live my life. I don't want anyone telling me how to live my life. Look, I'll be the first one to say that the church should, should be against sin. They must be against sin. I believe the church should be against sin. I know that's a loaded word. I know sin is a loaded word, just like mask and vaccines and CRT. But let's define sin. Sin is anything that works against what God is for. Sin is against anything that, uh, that God is for. So simply put, sin is choosing you over God. It's choosing what you want over what God wants. So if God is against sin, then we must be against sin. Sin separates us from God, and the penalty of sin is death. Look at me, listen to me. None of us could ever make our relationship with, right with God, and so what we deserve is death. Jesus steps up and says, I'm going to take that death on for you. And he died, and he rose again. So the only hope that we have is through the death and resurrection of Christ. So yes, we must be against sin, but not against everything. Won't you hear me? We, we ought to be against sin, but not against everything. Um, how many of you guys are big brothers? How many of you are maybe a big sister? You're typically a firstborn. You're, you're typically uh, the firstborn kind of personality. You're a driver. You want to get things done. You expect things done in a certain way. I, I get that as a big brother. I totally get that. 
But how many of you are little brothers and little sisters? And you know exactly what it looks like, what it feels like to have a big brother or a big sister. You feel bossed around. You feel judged. You feel like you're not meeting up to their level of achievement. And it seems that the way the Christians have gone has been more the big brother route. For some reason, religious people have a tendency to be more like a big brother than anything else. So when Jesus was on the planet, there was a group of people that were big brothers. And some people really didn't like that. And so they were the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were literally the religious big brother uh, of the first century. And so what they did is they believed that if they were good, that means that God would bless them. Good behavior meant good rewards. That's, what, that's how they lived. And not only on an individual level, but on a national level, that if the whole group of people would obey God, then God would bless them. It was more of a bartering system with God. It was a quid pro quo. So enter Jesus, and he knows that this isn't how it works. That There is no bartering system with God. There's no quid pro quo system. And so Jesus is actually running to the people that the Pharisees are running away from. The Pharisees want nothing to do with those who are living a life of sin. I mean, the Pharisees, in their mind, that if you were born a certain way, if you uh, um, uh, contracted a disease, that obviously you had sin in your life. And Jesus is like, this is not how that works. It's not how it works. And there's a moment where Luke, who's a physician, he's a journalist, and he's interviewing people who interact with Jesus, and he writes down this in Luke 15. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. And tax collectors, they were traitors, man. They would collect money on behalf of the Roman government, tax their own people, and that tax went to the oppression and murder of their own people. They were not liked. Everywhere where Jesus went, tax collectors often followed. So this made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people even eating with them. And so Jesus knows like, the heart and motivation of their complaining. So he tells three parables, three made-up stories. So the first is the story of the lost sheep. So a shepherd has 100 sheep. One gets away. One's lost. So he leaves the 99 behind, goes after the one, finds it, rescues it, puts it up on his shoulders, gets it back to the protection of the fold. Now please hear this. He was not celebrating the sheep. He was celebrating the rescue of the sheep. Has a celebration with his friends and family who know that he lost his, who knew that he lost the sheep. So moral of the story, point of the story, God celebrates when those who are lost are found. Story number two, the lost coin. A woman has ten coins. Around that time that was very valuable having ten coins. Well, she loses one. She flips the house upside down. She's able to find her coin. Then she celebrates with her friends and family that she found her coin. Notice, the woman doesn't celebrate the coin, but celebrates finding the coin. The point of the story, God celebrates when those who are lost are found. Then we have the story of the lost son. Let's break it down to two parts. Part one and then part two. Part one, father has two sons, an older and a younger. The younger son decides that he wants his share of the inheritance before his father dies. So he goes up to his dad. Dad, I know you're not dead yet, but would you mind going ahead 
expediting my inheritance, giving it to me now, so that I can live the life that I want to live young. I don't want to wait to live this life when you're gone. I want it now. I love you, but I love your money more. So, to the shock of the people listening, the father agrees. And the father gives his son the inheritance. So his son walks away, and guess what? He squanders it. He wastes it. He finds himself homeless and hungry, and he's working at a pig farm. And while there, he envies the food the pigs are eating. So he finally comes to his senses. Man, this is not the life that I wanted. This is not how I wanted this all to play out. Maybe my dad will accept me back. If I, if I go back home, I apologize to my dad, and he may make me a servant. I just want to be a hired hand. Maybe he'll do that. You know what? Let me do that. So on his way home, man, he's rehearsing. Have you ever done that? Have you ever rehearsed the I'm sorry apology? Have you ever rehearsed a lot of things going through your mind? And all of a sudden, before he gets home, his father sees him, runs after him, and embraces him. See, the father was looking for the son. Notice the father doesn't celebrate the son but he celebrates the son coming home. The point of the story so far is that God celebrates those who are lost, are found. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, God saves those and celebrates with those who turn from their sin and trust Jesus' death and resurrection, that his death and resurrection is enough to heal their relationship with God. So part two of the story. This is more for those who are followers of Christ, those who are believers. So the older son is in the field. He's doing what he is supposed to do, working the fields. He's behaving. He's the firstborn. He's achieving. He has no idea that the younger son came home. So he hears the music. He hears the dancing. So he calls one of the servants. He's like, hey, what's going on? He's like, hey, your brother came home. My brother came home. He's angry. He's angry with his dad because his dad is celebrating the son's return. So he goes to his daddy and says, look, he's been living up. He's wasted the inheritance. I've got nothing and he got everything. He's getting everything. Wait, wait, wait. Do I just see a, the fatted calf kind of walking by? You guys going to slaughter that? We're having ribeye for, 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 for him? And I believe it's possible that as the Pharisees were listening to this story, they were like, he's right seems like the father's celebrating his sin. He's celebrating this, this guy who just wasted everything. And the father says in the story, look, dear son, you've always stayed with me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead, has come back to life. He was lost and now he is found. The point of the story is still is that God celebrates when those who are lost are found. So the point of the parables are so powerful. No wonder why we focus in on it. But sometimes we don't focus on all the details. And one of the details that were so important is where we stumble. The last parable is where we stumble. I think for some of us, man, getting the second part right is so important. Because if we don't get the second part right, the people who need to understand the first part will have a harder time understanding it from us. See, by getting the second part wrong causes all sorts of trouble. So what does it look like 
to get the second part right? What does it look like for us to be the things that God is for? So Jesus breaks it, basically breaks it down. Either you're going to be the big brother or the father. You're going to represent the father. You're going to represent the big brother. What do you say? And Jesus wants us to represent and act more like the father than the big brother. So this is how it plays out. One, we shouldn't get mad at lost things. We shouldn't get mad at lost things. The shepherd isn't getting mad at his sheep. He's not, the woman isn't getting mad at her coin. The father doesn't get mad at the son. All three are searching for things that have value to them. So they're searching for the lost things. And by doing that, they are showing that those things have priority. Two, we can't expect lost people to behave like found people. We can't expect lost people to behave like found people. Found people and lost people live by two different codes. Lost people, they do whatever they deem is right and appropriate. Found people are set up by God. The boundaries, the code is set up by God. So they do what God deems what is right and appropriate. I mean, think about it like this. Say we have, say we have a football player trying out. So where he's from, he's never played American football. He's played soccer. So he comes, he's trying out because we don't have soccer at the middle school level. And so he's super excited. And yet he comes and in his mind, the rules are you never use your hands. But in American football, you need to use your hands. It's pointless for me to get mad at him. It's pointless for me to expect him to behave like an American football player. Why? Because he just doesn't know how to. He is under a different set of rules. He has to learn. So this is my opportunity to explain the rules. So here's what we could do. We can inspire people to follow Jesus by engaging them in the life and mission of our church. We represent God to those who are far from him, which makes perfect sense. Look, if I wasn't a follower of Jesus, if I wasn't a churchgoer, how would I be attracted to Christ? should be his body. So when we act like we're against people, lost people, they're actually automatically going to assume the same about God. That, okay, if we're against them, that means that Jesus is against them. That's why Jesus told so many stories that we should be the thing, we should be for the things that God is for. So do you remember how we define sin? Sin is anything that works against what God is for. Listen, when we are are so focused on trying to be like the big brother, when we're trying to boss people around who don't live under our code. It's pointless. If anything, we're pushing them away. And I truly believe that it's possible for some of us that we may just be sinning ourselves by judging and bossing around people who, who live by a different set of rules. Our best friends... They stopped attending. They were able to get connected in another church, but it didn't last long. They moved around a few times, and 14 years later, they're not even together as a couple. And I do believe that Sunday, that Sunday hurt them. But knowing them and knowing their story, I believe a multitude of Sundays like that hurt them. 
it's it doesn't help anyone when Christians are acting more like the big brother than they are the father. So which one, big brother or father, do you represent in your relationships and why? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to listen to these three made-up stories from Jesus. I'm so thankful for the last parable. God, I, I recognize that it's not me that you celebrate. It's that fact that the rescue of me that you celebrate. You, you celebrate my rescue. You celebrate those who are listening that have been rescued. You celebrate their rescue. And so, Father, I ask for those who are yet to follow Jesus, who have yet to make a decision to follow Jesus, I ask that you make it crystal clear to them. In order for them to have a rich and satisfying life, it's only through Christ. Father, help them realize and recognize that you love them. Sin separated them from you, but Jesus rescues them. And then, Father, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, I just ask that you will help us to be more like the Father than the big brother. Help us not to get mad at people who live under a different code than we do. Help us to be against sin, but not against everything. Help us to be against sin and for people. Help us to be more like that Father. In Jesus' name, amen.